0: After a long Canadian winter of frozen fingers and toes and slippery sidewalks, warm summer days can be a welcome change, but when the temperatures heat up, it presents its own set of challenges for runners. On this week's episode of The ShakeOut, we chat with experts who dish out simple, common sense ways to deal with the heat and make summer running both enjoyable and safe. The type of clothing and gear you wear during the summer months can make a big difference. Lynn Bork, owner of The Runner's Shop, Canada's oldest independent-run specialty store, suggests how runners can dress from head to toe to keep their cool.
1: Well, I think that the main thing I would kind of point out is that there is a product that both uh, Segoy and New Balance uh, have in some of their summer clothing called Ice Fill. So it's ice, like ice, and then F-I-L. And essentially these, uh, they, they call them uh, intelligent fabrics. So they're designed to work with um, or to react with moisture to cool the skin. So the moisture is actually your own sweat. It's really incredible how it has this cooling effect. Some hats have the ice fill, but others are really very focused now. For example, like we carry buff hats, and they have a 98% UV protection. So the fabrics that they're using, the UPF fabric, is giving you that very high rating for the UV protection. Another really cool thing about the buff hats is that they have a little place for your sunglasses to clip into. North Face has a... Um, a line called Better Than Naked, and it's very, very light on the skin. The Sugoi also has this uh, cooling technology in shorts. is extremely popular. We see this being popular more so with men's shorts. I think they, they, you know, in the thing they call it Go Commando, but it's it's basically like the panel, the crotch panel in the shorts. It has this ice-filled technology in it. It cools you down. Like one thing that we have uh, find here at the runner shop, of course, is that just the, 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 the fabrics that are, are nice and thin um, but do give you um, some protection um, are, of course, very popular. So, for example, the Saucony, the tran- it's called Tranquil Short. And it's just the fabric is so lightweight, a lightweight stretch fabric, providing great moisture management. And excellent comfort. So I think that's really where people, what people are looking for, is the is the moisture management, so that you don't have chafing and that sort of thing. There's um, like these fabulous arm coolers from Segoy. So you you have uh, with the Iceville technology, so you protect against the sun, uh, obviously, but also like a lot of people would think, oh my god, I don't want to wear like an, an arm sleeve in the summertime. But as the skin protection, like myself, I have some skin problems from years of running outside, and this is just, I mean, it's fabulous. Like, it, it actually cools you, which is just super. And I found last summer when I was wearing it that I, the more moisture you give to it, the almost the better the fabric works. So, I mean, I'd be coming through Trinity Bellwoods Park, and I would just dunk it right into the fountain. <laughs> it was fantastic the Beluga ultralight socks basically as light as a feather. They're a, a very very light sock but ex- extremely comfortable and anti-blister and they fit well on the foot the way that the elasticity that's worked into the sock right sock that's the name of the company. They also carry a um a, a lightweight sock. The thing about right is that they have double layers. So their sort of claim to fame is they guarantee no blisters. There's one layer against your foot and then there's another layer against the shoe. So it's also a really, really great sock for the summer. With the shoes, it continues to be, people want a shoe that's going to last. You know, if they're going to spend $180 on a shoe, they don't want to only wear it for July and August. You know, I mean, clothing. Yes, it can be a fashion thing, right? You you buy clothes. You want to look good. You want to be cool. I think your eye really leads that decision. Oh yeah, I look good in this. Da da da. But with shoes, it's like if you need a stability shoe, we're still going to put you in a stability shoe. <laughs> okay, I can't put you in some like light little shoe because you're going to get injured. Every runner should always own some Body Glide. <laughs> That's just, so that's an an anti-chafing stick that you would put on. And, you know, that's great for both men and women, and uh, it's um, definitely a must for every runner. Also, hydration, very, very important, of course. We sell a wide selection of different hydration products. The Nathan's handhelds are very, very popular. You just slide your hand into it. It's got like a little attachment on it that you don't actually have to hold on to the bottle. It'll just, your hand just slides into it, and like literally you could be having a full conversation and kind of waving this thing around, and it's nice and secure on your hand. All of Nathan's products are tested out by their ultra runners so people they really get tested that not just going out and running a couple kilometers but going out running a couple hundred kilometers.
0: How you protect what's under all that summer gear should also be a priority for runners. With more exposure to the Sun it's important to make sure you're protecting your skin. Dr. Ann Curtis, a clinical dermatologist, describes the very real dangers of overexposing your skin to the sun and gives tips on how runners can protect themselves. Well,
2: sun protection is important for everybody, but the runners are obviously outside, so it's you know particularly important for them. I mean, <clears throat> I recommend sun protection even for people who are walking out to their car, driving in their car, and then going into the office because the ultraviolet light will come through the windshield, the ultraviolet light will come through the windows in their office. But for the runner, they're probably outside. So they're getting the uh, ultraviolet exposure directly. And ultraviolet exposure contributes to skin aging, increased number of moles, and development of precancerous and skin cancers. So you wanna use an SPF of 60, because you're only getting a third of the number on the bottle. So if you apply your 60 generously, you're getting a 20. And that is just because the way that these sunscreens are tested, it's a lab test that's, you know, standardized. And they apply the stuff in a thick white layer like mayonnaise. And even people who are told to use something generously don't apply it like they have a layer of mayonnaise on. So trying to be generous, they're probably getting about a 20 from their SPF of 60. So that would be fine. So for reapplying, I think that really depends on how long you're out for. So, you know, if you're running for 45 minutes and you've been sweating, I wouldn't be worried about, you know, reapplying because you're finished your run. You know, if you're going to be out for hours, like you're playing golf and you're doing 18 holes, then yes, I would recommend that you reapply at the ninth hole. But then there's also the issue of dripping into the eyes because a number of sunscreens will really sting the eyes if they drip in. And then that becomes a disincentive. People don't want to use the sunscreen because they don't want their eyes to sting. So you can do one of two things. You can either use a sunscreen with a kind of a, you know, no more tears thing. So for example, the Neutrogena Sheer Zinc will advertise that it will not sting the eyes. Otherwise the trick is to use something on the forehead that isn't going to run. And that's where the sticks are very useful. So quite a number of the brands now have like a stick format. So they tend to be a little bit more of a waxy formulation and they usually don't run. Personally, I'm not too fond of sprays because people don't apply them nearly generously enough. So what I advise is that when people are putting on sort of their lotion, that they smooth it on so that they can see the lotion, like, you know, if you smooth it on so you can see the lotion and then you rub it till you can't see it, you just rubbed it off. So what you want to do is smooth it on so you can see it, move to another area, smooth it on so you can see it, move to another area, smooth it on so you can see it, etc. By the time a couple of minutes have gone by of you sort of moving from area to area, at that point it's soaking in. And then you still need to wear a hat, especially men who who are starting to go bald on the top because if you're completely bald on the top, it's a little easier to actually use a thick layer of sunscreen on your bald scalp. But for a lot of guys, they aren't totally bald. They're thinning, but they're not gonna, you know, rub sunscreen thickly all over where they still have bits of hair, So that's where the hat is important. If you're putting your sunscreen on and then you're tanned, it isn't working. Well, a tan itself is evidence of a sun damage. Freckles are evidence of sun damage. Moles, like most people don't realize that you're not actually born with moles. Only one in 100 babies is born with a mole and they usually only have one. All the other moles are related to sun exposure. So I actually find that often with teenagers, you know, if you tell a teenager that they should use a sunscreen because it'll prevent skin aging and skin cancer, that's meaningless to them because like when you're a teenager, you think you'll never be 30 let alone, you know, 50 and have to worry about these things. Whereas if you tell a teenager that, you know, the more sun they get, the more moles they're going to have, that's an immediate. They already have moles. They don't like them and they don't want more of them. And by the way, more moles is more risk of melanoma, which is potentially fatal.
0: So once you're decked out in summer gear and have taken measures to protect your skin from the sun, it's time to actually get out there and run. Anyone who's been out during a hot day, whether it's an easy run, a workout, or a race, knows that it's tough. It feels harder. Paul Osland, Olympian and coach of the University of Toronto Masters Track Club, explains why it feels harder and how runners can adjust their training to adapt to the conditions in the summer.
3: Our Our bodies are designed for relatively very narrow band of temperature range in terms of internal body temperature. And so, you know, when you're really cold and your body starts to shiver and shake, that's actually the body generating heat, through the shaking and basically getting the muscles to move is trying to heat itself up. And of course, when we're outdoors in the summer and it's hot and we start sweating, it's our body's way of trying to cool, cool our, our core temperature down but it's only so efficient it's like a car that that's radiator overheats and and again if that if that radiator overheats and the engine gets too hot it basically blows up well our bodies are very similar in terms of that and we we can only handle a very minute change in in uh, in temperature and that's why you'll see some people myself i generally don't have too much of a problem with heat part of that is because my system is very efficient at um, dispersing heat. One of the reasons for that is I'm fairly tall. I have quite a bit of body surface to evaporate sweat and cool myself off. Shorter, um, smaller people have a bigger challenge with heat, generally speaking. Of course, everything's general term. Generally because they have less body surface, and so they tend to overheat more often, as well as the more you weigh, the more you're going to keeping that uh, heat in. When it first gets really hot out, we all really suffer from it. And it's, it's because we're not used to it. Our bodies are not adapted. And so adaptation does happen. And so if you can do some general adaptation, and that might be um, maybe going out for shorter runs. If you have to run, first of all, if you can run in the early morning or, or evenings when you get out of the direct sunlight and it's not as hot, that's going to help you for sure. Um, but we can be running at 9 o'clock at night and you can be 90% humidity feeling like 35 with the temperature and it's still going to affect you, but at least you're not getting direct sunlight because the direct sunlight is going to do do a double whammy on you. So that will help you be able to at least get, start getting coping with it. Maybe do shorter runs at the beginning and, and if you still are, you know, doing the marathon training or long training, you need lots of runs, then break it up, do two runs, run in the morning and run in the evening and get your overall mileage up. But you're not having to do, you know, 16 or 20K all at once. And you, if you've broken it up into two runs of eight or two runs of 10, that's a lot easier on your body until you will adapt. And as you get used to it and run more and more, you will get used to the heat. The body does get used to the heat better. Doesn't mean you'll ever be perfect. And again, some people will be much better than others. People laugh at me and go, I can't believe you're running It's like you know, it feels like forty out there with the humidity and everything else. And running, you're running at like two o'clock in the afternoon in the hottest part of the day. And I'm going, Well, it doesn't bother me. I sweat, but but as long as I'm moving, I, I'm I'm okay. And I may go a little bit slower just to save myself, but I'm okay. And it always after like a few times out in the heat. My body adapts and I do get used to it. The first time might be a little tough, but then I get used to it. If you're a runner that is really challenged by the heat, then I'd say go do a pool workout. You can run in the pool for an hour, an hour and a half. And, you know, yeah, you may overheat simply because um, it's hot out, but hopefully the temperature of the pool isn't too hot. Right? I mean, if you're trying to do a workout in a 90-degree pool, then, yeah, you're going to be challenged. But if you're going into a pool that is you know, 75 to you know, 70 to kind of even 65 to 80 degrees, you're going to be way better off than you are trying to run in 40-degree uh, temperatures. You can always go indoors and do a workout on a treadmill if it's in an air-conditioned environment. And do a run on an air-conditioned environment i know a lot of people that would do that it's kind of like they'll do that in the winter when it's freezing cold and 10 feet of snow out there and they'll do that in the summer when it's brutally hot but others just don't like running on a treadmill they don't like being indoors i've always said to people don't do things that you don't enjoy doing unless you're a professional runner and being paid to run why would you do things that you absolutely don't enjoy doing so Find the things that you enjoy doing. So, you know, we've listed a couple here. Pool running, running on a treadmill indoor, doing an elliptical workout indoor, even running around a track indoor. You can go to an indoor track or maybe on a bike where you've got the wind cooling you off. Maybe you're okay on a bike. It's all dependent on what you're comfortable doing and then find the thing that you love to do. And maybe it's a few of them. Maybe sometimes you go on a bike or in a pool or indoors or whatever else and mix it up so that you're not getting totally bored.
0: In order to avoid injury or illness, runners need to be in tune with their bodies. And during the summer months, it's particularly important to be able to recognize signs that they may have pushed their bodies too far. Dr. Patty McCleskey, Chief Medical Officer with the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific, describes illnesses and injuries that runners need to look out for in the summer.
4: Heat stroke in an athlete is when they've accumulated more heat than they can dissipate, and the, the term stroke is referring to when you start to develop neurologic symptoms. It, this would be like a severe heat injury. So typically with mild heat injury, you get symptoms like headache and nausea and you don't feel well, but when it gets severe, you know, you can have neurologic symptoms, weakness of uh, balance problems, and you can, you can collapse and, and you can die. There is a mortality rate associated with heat stroke. The people that are higher risk are people that are new to a hot environment. So if you're from Edmonton and uh, you go down in the middle of the winter to run a marathon, you know, in the Caribbean or in the southern United States where it's hot and humid, you know, you wouldn't have had this opportunity to acclimate to those conditions. Um, And so you'd be at risk. People that are less fit, or they have not developed mechanisms for efficient heat dissipation. People that are heavier in body mass, just because they tend to retain heat easier than people that are smaller. So those are kind of the higher risk groups. Definitely in the marathon, like even when you do it right, you feel bad at the end. And so, you know, if you're running a half marathon and you're out there for two and a half hours, you know, it's a long time to be out there. And at the end, you know, could you have a headache and feel a bit dizzy and, um, you know, feel unwell? Yeah, and, and that may not be anything more than you just pounded your legs for, you know, two and a half hours. But I, I do think that, you know, people, they should always be able to make steady progress towards the finish line. So if you notice you're weaving, you know, that would be a clear sign that whether it's heat illness or something else that you should probably switch from running to walking potentially even stopping and sitting down and then if you don't feel better after rest then you know seeking attention that way the first signs of dehydration are usually increased sensation of perceived effort so if you're running at a you know in your hot human environment and you're in a race situation or even just a long training effort and you're at a pace that you know you should tolerate but you're not tolerating it often that can indicate you're starting to get excessively dehydrated and that's starting to impact your performance other signs of dehydration you know again headache nausea you know severe dehydration uh, usually performance is severely affected and you know sweating it goes up a lot, but then when it's really, really bad, it starts to go down and that's usually a late sign. But uh, I think that the thing for your readers uh, initially would be to look for increased sense of perceived exertion. Hydration is really individual. and uh, you know people that exercise a lot, particularly in warmer environments, they lose a lot of fluid and so they require uh, more hydration on a daily basis than people that don't exercise at all or exercise in cooler environments. And that's independent of, personal sweat rates, clothing that you're wearing that may impact your sweat rates, what you're consuming for fluids. So it can get kind of complicated in a hurry. But I think, you know, a good rule of thumb is when you exercise, if you weigh yourself before you exercise and after you exercise, you can get a sense of how much fluid you've lost. And so we all agree that uh, one kilogram equals a liter of fluid. So if you go and you run for an hour, and you've lost a kilo of body weight, that means you've probably sweated a liter of fluid. And then you, you want to try and replace most of that. And I say most of it because it, it's actually shown that you don't need to be completely rehydrated, that the body typically you know, can tolerate 1% to 2% of dehydration in performance. But you do need to replace some of these fluids. And you know, the process by which you do that, you know, it's, it's a bit of trial and error. You know, so what what fluids can you tolerate when you run some people they, they don't tolerate a lot of fluids their stomach just doesn't they, they get bloated really easy some people can tolerate water but not electrolyte drinks some people you know, can tolerate a lot of electrolyte drinks and so it, it and it is something that you can practice and improve on but yeah the, the way to make it simple is to uh, run in different conditions uh, warm hot humid cooler get in the habit of weighing yourself before and after uh, your training sessions, and then you start to come up with uh, an idea about how much you sweat when it's cool, how much you sweat when it's warm, how much you sweat when it's hot and humid. And, and then you can start to tailor your hydration strategy in those training efforts and in those races based on your personal uh, water or sweat rates. There is a danger to overhydration, and this is referred to in the sport medicine literature, the, the endurance sport medicine literature as hyponatremia. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what actually occurs in hyponatremia, but it's generally accepted that it is related to overhydration. So it's not about how much salt is in your drinks, but just that you're drinking too much in general. Now, it's important to point out that dehydration in marathons and hot weather events is really common. And symptomatic hyponatremia is much less common. And that's not to say that people shouldn't be aware of it, but... My experience is that, in general, people might be too aware of it and so are are reluctant to to follow an appropriate hydration strategy. Now, the thing about hydration strategy, it should be based on sweat rates. It should also be based on thirst. And so if you're thirsty, you know, that's usually a sign that your body is at least slightly dehydrated to some extent to stimulate the the thirst mechanism. Where people get into the risk of hyponatremia or overhydration is where they're drinking beyond thirst, so it's people that drink to a schedule rather than how they feel. In particular, if you're if you haven't figured out your sweat rates and they've just decided you're gonna drink a liter of fluid an hour, but you're only losing half a liter of fluid an hour, you can see that after a couple hours you're gonna you know be overhydrated. This is a big risk for people that are less fit or or, uh, a novice runner so that don't train as much or less experienced in that way. It's more of a risk for women and I'm not certain that we understand that exactly why. The biggest risk though is the duration of the event and so for longer events, particularly events over four hours, this is a bigger risk. And this just speaks to over four hours, you have a lot of opportunity to overhydrate. You know, I, am the medical director for the Victoria Marathon and that happens every long weekend in October and, um, y- you know, in the medical tent, we have a lot of people at the end of the race that have those symptoms, headache, nausea, dizzy, they don't feel well. And most of them, you know, have some form of dehydration, but we have had a few people that have had hyponatremia, but it's, but it is much less common than dehydration.
0: We'd like to thank Lynn Bork, Anne Curtis, Patty McCluskey, and Paul Oslin for their contributions this week. And thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Shakeout Podcast. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed listening to this and our other episodes, please write a review for us on iTunes. We are bringing you this podcast weekly. If you like it and are wondering how you can support us, please subscribe to Canadian Running Magazine in print or the digital edition. This certainly helps us bring you more great content. And finally, we'd like to thank the Ontario Media Development Corporation for their contributions to this podcast. Thanks for listening.